The types of claims that Jesus of Nazareth made for himself are not the types of claims that can be easily ignored. Over the course of his three-year earthly ministry, he claimed to be the promised Messiah to Israel. His favorite designation for himself was the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Read this way. I kept looking, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every nation and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. During his trial before the high priest, Jesus was directly challenged. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers him boldly. He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, a direct reference back to that Daniel passage. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is one of those times where Jesus became aggressive. We think of Jesus as fairly passive in the first advent. We think of him being beaten and scourged and crucified, coming in humility. This is one of those places where Jesus shoots back. When he's asked directly by the high priest of all people who should have known who he was, of all people in Israel, the high priest should have recognized who he was. When the high priest challenges him, directly challenges him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Mashiach? Are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed one? In other words, the son of God. Are you that person? Jesus gets right back in his face and he says, I am that person. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's second advent. He came the first time in humility. The second time he's going to come in triumph and exercising wrath over all of sin and those who have rejected him. At this point, the high priest knows what he's saying and he tears his clothes, which is a sign of great distress in that culture. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy and calls for his execution. He's very aware of what Jesus is claiming for himself at that point. Some people try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Son of God. That was just a claim that was attached to him later, toward the end of the first century, by his later disciples. Some would say his immediate disciples. But others, he didn't become the Son of God until later. My son David had a course up at Texas A&M. And part of that course was when Jesus became the Son of God. Well, Jesus was eternally the Son of God. But some people would like to say he became the Son of God later. No, right here he tells them that he is the Son of God. And the high priest understood it. That's why he tore his clothes. That's why he accused Jesus of blasphemy. That's why he wanted him dead. He wanted him executed. Because he was claiming to be God. Jesus' enemies understood what Jesus' claims were. We might also observe at that point that Jesus considered Son of Man and Son of God to be two titles designating the same person. Both of those titles he claimed for himself. Further, Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins, and he allowed himself to be worshipped. 
Now, one might say, well, the apostle said, well, your sins will be forgiven if you do this or if you do that. That's not what was happening when Jesus claimed the ability to forgive sins. Someone had been a sinner, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if that was to happen on a more popular level, more common level today, and let's say a person over here had offended a person right here, and, I, and, and it was between these two guys, but I told this guy over here, listen, your sins are forgiven. It's okay what you did to him. <laughs> or you have no, no penalty to pay for what you did. The guy over here is going to say, whoa, wait a minute. He sinned against me, not against you. The only way that Jesus could step in and say your sins are forgiven in that circumstance was if he was the one that was ultimately offended by the wrong. And he allowed himself to be worshipped. Remember when people tried to worship the apostles? Jesus' representatives, God's representatives, remember what they told him? Get up! Don't worship me. That's the last thing that they needed to do. I've been in places around the world where people entered into the conferences and they entered with entourages, flowing robes, as if they wanted to be worshipped. That's not a good thing. I was in, Kazakh, in, in uh, Ukraine one time at the Lavra, which is their, one of the oldest monasteries in Europe, 800-year-old monastery. And I can't help but remember how the priests walked around that place with their long gray robes and their long beards. And whenever they would pass by, people would bow to them, literally bow. Now, I understand bowing is a sign of respect. But they were bowing as a sign of worship to these people, and they were accepting the worship. The last time I looked, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. That includes any priest with long flowing gray robes. But Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped because he's worthy of worship, because he was God. Oh, and then I would say the pinnacle of all of his claims. Right before he was crucified, right before he was arrested in the upper room, he tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus makes probably what was the pinnacle of all of his claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Occasionally, well-meaning people will say, well, do you mean, by saying that, do you mean that this group of people will not go to heaven? What I am saying is I, I don't put a designation on any group of people that's the individual. Has the individual personally trusted Jesus Christ? That's the only way to heaven. He's the one that said it. People say, well, that makes, that makes Christianity exclusivistic. No, the road is narrow, but everybody can come in. The door is open to everybody. The door's not shut to anybody, but you have to come through Jesus. That's a claim he made for himself. Now, that's a pretty bold claim if it's not true. I mean, we have to come face to face with that claim. The other one's too. But if it's not true, we got some problems. Some have countered this by saying, well, Jesus was just a really fine person. A lot of people today like to equate Jesus and Buddha, both really great teachers, both really moral men. Well, one of the biggest differences is Jesus didn't leave his wife and his kids in the search for perfect happiness. That's a pretty big difference. But, and leave them forever. 
But there's a massive difference between the two. People say that Jesus was just a man. He was a fine moral teacher. He is someone that should be followed, but he's certainly not God. C.S. Lewis provided the classic retort to that assertion. He said, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. Then he goes on to say, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is just the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He has not intended to. If Lewis was right, I think he was, it seems as though we either have to accept Jesus as being who he said he was, or we need to have the intellectual honesty to reject him altogether and stop wasting our time. He's either who he said he was, worthy of our worship, our complete devotion, our unbridled, passionate devotion, or we should reject him altogether. We shouldn't, as the prophet said, limp between two opinions. You know, even as Christians sometimes, I wonder if we're limping along between two opinions, trying to straddle the fence and be so politically correct that we end up waking up one day and our spiritual lives are in the tank. Because we found that we're so much trying to please other human beings and we've forgotten to please the one that really matters. Because he was God. As Christians here today, we need to continually answer this same question. Was he who he said he was or not? Now, I'm not saying that we need to continually retrust him for salvation. That's a done deal. But every day we wake up and we either recognize his lordship over our lives or we don't. We either accept him or reject him. What will it be? Is there something that tips the scales one way or another? Or do I just have to have some sort of irrational step, or as Kierkegaard put it, an irrational leap of faith in the dark? Now, Kierkegaard thought that was a good thing, and Kierkegaard was a good guy. He was a Christian, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrote some great stuff, actually. But I don't agree with his leap in the dark statement. Christians don't take an irrational leap in the dark. We take a reasonable step of faith based upon factual information. Well, what is that factual information, you say? Well, that's what our subject is about today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what makes his claims believable. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hear me now, we should reject him altogether. We should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there would be no reason to believe him. But since he was raised from the dead, and we'll talk about the significance of that this morning, there's every reason to believe him. And there's every reason to fall at his feet and worship him with every moment that we're given on this earth. And yes, that includes when we're at work or we're in the ball game or when we're out to dinner at a restaurant. 
every aspect of our being is a part of worship. Now, this is corporate worship that we're doing here. We'll worship God forever and eternity. I've often wondered about that, and I've got to tell you, I don't know, I'll speak for all of us. The first time I heard that, I thought, heaven must not be that much fun. Because really, I've been to some worship services that weren't that much fun, where people have been looking at the clock saying, I wonder if I can get to Luby's before the line gets too long, or over here at the Papa's Barbecue, or I've got an appointment and he seems to be going along, what's the matter with him? You know, doesn't he, doesn't he, I'm waiting for him to look up at that clock, finally he looked up, thank, thank the Lord. And I think if that's what heaven's like, maybe I want to take my time, take some more vitamins and do a little extra running to, before I get there. I'm sure it'll be good in resurrection body, but listen, it's much more than that. We, we have the wrong idea of worship. You know, in heaven, everything we do is going to be worship because it's all going to be devoted to him. We'll be there in his presence. It's going to be marvelous. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential event in the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christian faith. I almost have to chuckle, but in an ironic way, when people say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, or I attend this particular denominational Christian church, but we don't believe in the divinity of Christ, and we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't, we don't believe in the miraculous, but we are Christians. No, you're not. There is no Christianity Without the resurrection, it's the essential event in Christianity, that and the crucifixion, of course. The resurrection proves or is an indispensable evidence of the value of his death on the cross. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter that we're introducing last week and this week, he said, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I'm not making this up. Paul said the same thing. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Then later in the same chapter, Paul goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're dead in your sins. See, Jesus made all these claims. Anybody can make claims. Jim Jones made claims down in South America in the 70s. I don't know that he ever claimed to be Messiah, but he claimed all kind of power for himself. Look what happened. The validation for who he was was 900 dead people down there, 200 of whom were innocent children that their parents killed at his orders on that last day. I think of other times, and we don't need to go into them, there are other times when people come up and say they're a Messiah figure and always ends tragically. But Jesus is not just a Messiah figure. He is the Messiah, and he proved it, not just by virtue of what he said, but by virtue of what he did. But I want you to listen to Paul again. This is the line that we need to draw for ourselves. We need to get serious. I'm talking about everybody. Every single human being in this room, me included, needs to get serious about our faith. Because if he's not raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. That means I'm wasting my time. And your faith is in vain. That means you're wasting your time. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. How much more clear does he have to make it? And you're still dead in your sins. You might wonder, what would Paul mean you're still dead in your sins? Because I thought the crucifixion took care of all that. I thought the work of Christ was finished on the cross. Well, it was. It was. But the confirmation, Paul says, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, manifested itself in his resurrection. What he's saying there was, if he wasn't resurrected, 
as he's promised that he would be, then we can't believe in the benefit of his death on the cross. But he was. Jesus claimed that he would be resurrected three days after the crucifixion. That's a bold claim. You see claims all the time in the grocery store. Cindy tells me, quit getting upset when you get in the express line at the grocery store. It's only supposed to have 15 items, and somebody comes up with a whole big bag of stuff. They can't read the sign up there. She says, either stay in the car and let me go in, or what I'd like for you to do, so you don't embarrass us, read the magazines. That's what they're there for. I don't know about that. I've had about as much as Jen and Kim and all these people in our plastic surgeries. as I know a lot more about them than I'd really like to know by reading the magazines. I also see the predictions. People are prophets. It's like saying one of two people is going to win the next presidential election. Yeah, that's a pretty good prediction. Yeah, I'll go for that. But yeah, people make predictions all the time. People can say whatever they want to say. But sooner or later, they've got to do something to prove it. And what better proof is there to predict that you're going to die a brutal death, but then you're going to be raised again three days later? That's a pretty big prediction. If that had not come to pass, Jesus would have been proved to be a messianic imposter. But by his resurrection, he proved that he was the Son of God and that his work on the cross had real value. Not just theoretical value, real value. Lewis Berry Chafer, man who founded Dallas Seminary, summarized the importance of the resurrection with these words. He said the resurrection, or his resurrection, is vitally related to the ages past, to the fulfillment of all prophecy, to the values of his death, to the church, to Israel, to creation, to the purposes of God in grace, which reach beyond the ages to come, and to the eternal glory of God. Fulfillment of the eternal purposes related to all of these was dependent upon the coming forth of the Son of God from that tomb. He arose from the dead, and the greatness of that event is indicated by its importance in Christian doctrine. Had Christ not risen, by whom all things were created, that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, he for whom all things were created, who is before all things, and by whom all things consist, every divine purpose and blessing would have failed. Yes, the very universe and the throne of God would have dissolved and would have been dismissed forever. All life, light, and hope would have ceased. Death, darkness, and despair would have reigned. Though the spiritual powers of darkness might have continued, the last hope for a ruined world would have been banished eternally. It is impossible for the mind to grasp the mighty issues which were at stake at the moment which he came forth from that tomb. At no moment in time, however, were these great issues in jeopardy. The consummation of his resurrection was sure. For omnipotent power was engaged to bring it to pass. And then he concludes, every feature of the Christian's salvation, position, and hope was dependent upon the resurrection of his Lord. 
The Bible presents Jesus as rising physically from the grave. And this is no small point in Christianity. We believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a well-known resurrection hymn. It's one of my favorites, but we don't sing it anymore. But there's a well-known resurrection hymn that concludes, You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. The final line kind of messes it up. That he lives within my heart thing. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That's a bad line. Marcus Bork who's an Oxford-trained professor, recently retired from Oregon State. He's also a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. Professor Borg, in the classroom and in speaking engagements in the United States and all over the world, denies that Jesus rose bodily. In fact, he denies most all the miraculous in the life of Jesus. Borg believes that Jesus lives, but not physically. And get this, this is what he teaches his students, he lives in the hearts of his followers. If you ever see Borg, that's what he always says when he says that word. He lives in the hearts of his followers. This is what he wrote. He said, the truth of Easter has nothing to do with whether the tomb was empty on a particular morning 2,000 years ago or whether anything happened to the corpse of Jesus. Borg says, I see the truth of Easter as grounded in the Christian experience of Jesus as a living spiritual reality of the present. Borg continued, I think the resurrection of Jesus really happened, but I have no idea if it involved anything happening to his corpse, and therefore I have no idea if it involves an empty tomb. But as for me, it doesn't matter, because the central meaning of the Easter experience or the resurrection of Jesus is that his followers continue to experiencing him as a living reality, a living presence after his death. So I would have no problem whatsoever with archaeologists finding the corpse of Jesus. For me, that would not be a discrediting of the Christian faith or of the Christian tradition. And I end his quote there. On the contrary, Dr. Borg, it certainly would discredit the Christian faith. The empty tomb is essential. Without it, there's no Christianity. One wonders if Professor Borg has ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is an indispensable, it's an essential aspect of the Christian faith. Jesus was physically resurrected as opposed to a spiritual resurrection. Without it, there's no Christianity. So it's not just that Jesus lives in my heart. Jesus has been physically resurrected. Coming up on two years ago, my dad went to be with the Lord. He still lives in my heart. I think about him all the time. I experience, I experience him, him as a living reality. I do. But he hasn't been yet resurrected. He's in heaven with the Lord. He hasn't received his resurrected body. I haven't physically seen him. I've experienced him, but I haven't physically seen him. You see the difference that I'm making here. For Borg, the resurrection of Jesus is no different than my experience of my father now. Or your experience of whoever it is that you've lost that's a loved one that you miss dearly. You know what I mean. No, Jesus rose physically. That's a good thing he did because we're going to have a body just like his. I would hate to have my only hope be after I die that I would live on in the hearts of my beloved daughter and sons. I want that to happen. But my hope is not that I'll just be a living memory for them. 
My hope is that I'll be physically resurrected again and live on forever in a physical resurrection body. That's what we've been promised. So the idea of a physical, a bodily physical resurrection is, is huge. It's important. The same body that went in that tomb comes out of that tomb. Same one. The tomb is empty. It's been transformed by the time it comes out. But it's the same body. That's a very important aspect of Christianity. There are seven points of validation for that. I'll just discuss them ever so briefly. First, the tomb's empty. Very few people, in fact, I don't know of anybody that argues that there was a corpse in the tomb and they came and found it. That's, that's not part of the historical record. The tomb was empty. Jesus was touched and handled in resurrection body. In my experience of my father in the last couple of years, I haven't touched him or handled him. I've been able to shake his hand or kiss him on the cheek. I will one day, but I haven't been able to yet. Jesus, while he was here in resurrection body, could have been kissed on the cheek. You could have shaken his hand. He was touched and handled. Jesus asserted that his resurrection body has flesh and bones. He said, touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones. That's Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful flesh, as Paul uses the term sarks. But he died and rose again in a physical body. This, by the way, also adds credence to the Christian's claim that the physical body is not evil in and of itself. Matter is not evil in and of itself. That's an old Platonic idea. That's an old Greek idea that we incorporated into Christianity Really early, and probably maybe even by the third century, part of that was incorporated in. But that's not Christianity. This is a body of corruption that we have now, awaiting a resurrection body. But the body that we have now is a partner with the soul in doing the work, doing the work of God. So it's not evil in and of itself. One of my favorites, the fourth point of validation, is that Jesus ate on at least four occasions in his resurrection body. A few years ago, I went to Weight Watchers. I know you can't tell, but I did. <laughs> one of the things that they taught us, one of the things they asked us, How, what do you eat? And after answering all the questionnaires, I had to admit, I eat for fun. A lot of what I eat is for fun. I enjoy it. And I know you can tell. You don't have to say that. But I, but I enjoy <laughs> what I eat. And in heaven, I doubt that our resurrection bodies will need to eat, but there will still be feasts there. Isn't that an odd thing? There will still be feasts. We'll still eat. And I assume everything's going to taste good. There'll be nothing, no bland health foods in heaven. It'll all be good. The fifth point of validation is that Jesus' body had wounds. He has scars in his hands and his feet, and those scars will be there forever. His is the only resurrection body that will have wounds as far as I know. Because his is the only resurrection body that deserves to have the wounds. None of us, no matter what we've suffered for Christ, comes close to those holes in his hands and feet. Nothing. Nothing comes close. Jesus' resurrection body was recognizable. Now, I find that very comforting. That's one of the most common questions I get about heaven. Will we be recognizable in heaven? And the answer is an unqualified yes, we will be. We will be recognizable in heaven because Jesus is recognizable in his resurrection body. Now, you may say, well, what about the road to Emmaus? Because the first part of that trip, those two unnamed disciples didn't recognize him. But then the text tells us that he removed the veil, and they recognized him at that point. 
The disciples don't recognize him when they're way out in the boat but on the Sea of Galilee, but once they get closer, they recognize him. No, Jesus was recognizable in resurrection body. And Jesus' resurrection body could be seen and heard. These seven points of validation are what theologians use to demonstrate that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave physically, not just spiritually. A, a spirit doesn't eat. A spirit can't be touched and handled. A spirit wouldn't have wounds because there's no body to have wounds. Jesus has a physical body. And that's different. And one day, oh, this is such good news, one day we'll have a body like Jesus' resurrection body. And it will be a physical body. It'll be different from the one we have now. Another part of the second most common question I'm asked about heaven is how old, how old will that body be? What will we look like in heaven? Well, the most common answer, and everybody's guessing about this, but the most common answer is probably 33, 34. That's what Jesus was when he had his resurrection body. So it's very probable. I wouldn't mind looking 33 again. <laughs> that was, I like that, actually. But I don't know. But whatever it, whatever it is, you'll be recognizable and you'll be, you'll be per perfection. There will be no genetic flaws. It'll be absolute perfection right straight from the hand of God. How he's going to work that out, I don't know. But if there is a People magazine in heaven, there's not, I don't think. But, it, but if there was a People magazine in heaven, we'd all take our turn on the cover. The resurrection of body also won't, get, won't be diseased. We, we have people here, people that are not here this morning because their bodies are diseased. They feel very badly today. There are people that are here that their bodies feel very badly today. That won't be the same in resurrection body. In fact, there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, and no more death. That resurrection body can never die again. You can rock right next to the edge of a cliff in heaven and not have to worry about falling off. We'll have a body just like Jesus, and it will be a physical body. It'll be different from the one we have now with different physical properties. But it's going to be physical, and we won't just live on in the hearts of our loved ones. Now, I hope we do. I hope we live the kind of life that we do live on in the hearts of our loved ones until we join them again. I'm not putting that down. But that's not all there is. Because sad to say, the memories that we have of our loved ones tend to fade after a generation or two. And if it's not the grandkids, it's the great-grandkids or the great-grandkids that look at a picture and say, who was that? And they know very little about you. No, we don't just live on in the hearts of our loved ones. We are going to live on. Bork said that it would not bother him at all if the body of Jesus was someday discovered, that it would bother me greatly. If the body of Jesus is found, we can hang it all up. It's over. And as Paul said, we're still dead in our sins. A few years ago, the very well-known movie director, producer, claimed to have found, along with some archaeologists, the, the tomb of Jesus and a, a box perhaps containing his bones. As it turned out, it was all a fraud. Now, it was front-page news when it came out. When it was discovered that it was a fraud, and to my knowledge, the Israeli government is prosecuting the people because they take their archaeology very seriously over there. That's page 26 or page 27 news. No, they haven't found the body of Jesus. The truth is that he did rise from the grave. He validated that who, he was who he said he was, and when we place our faith in him and him alone, 
We place our faith in a worthy object. I know in whom I have believed. And I'm confident that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted until that day. He's able to keep that which I have entrusted to him, which is my very life, it's my soul, until that very day. I know in whom I have believed. The plain fact of history is that that tomb was empty. The resurrected Jesus was seen by over 500 people. The Apostle Paul went from being a persecutor of Christianity and Christians to a Christian persecuted for Christ after he saw the resurrected Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, went from, being, went from being skeptic to martyr. Peter went from being one who denied that he even knew the man to one who died for Jesus, all the while claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus happened. It's an historical fact. And we have to face that fact and respond to it. And the way I see it, there are two categories of people that need to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And the first category of people are those who have already trusted Jesus Christ, whose eternal life is secure, completely secure. Once you have trusted Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And as Charles Ryrie once said, if eternal life could be lost, we're calling it the wrong thing. But for us who have eternal life, we still need to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ every morning when we wake up, every afternoon after lunch, every evening right before we go to bed. Throughout the day, we still need to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And moment by moment, we either recognize His dominion over our lives or we don't. Now, the fact is, many, many times during the day, we don't because we all sin. Not only before salvation, but after salvation, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why God has made this incredible process whereby we can confess our sins to Him and be forgiven. But as believers, my first challenge this morning as we conclude this service is that we consider the resurrected Jesus. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is the real deal. He's either who He said He was or He's not. Now, you've already trusted Him for the big thing. How about trusting Him for the little things in life? And everything past our salvation, by definition, is a little thing, even if it's massively brutal, incredible suffering. Compared to the receiving of eternal life, everything else is easy. Are we going to trust Him when times get difficult? Are we going to trust Him when we're on the way to the doctor to get that report? Or when we're on our way into the boss's office to hear what he's got to say? Or when your wife or your husband says, we need to talk. Are we going to trust him at those times? Are we going to trust him for the big thing and then act like he doesn't really exist afterwards? Are we going to respect his lordship? Now, he's lord whether we ever respect it or not. It's in our best interest to respect his lordship. Are we going to trust him in the daily activities of our lives and move from a place where we're immature in the faith Maybe not in a straight line, but to where someday we're mature in the faith. And we, like Paul, can say, I finished the fight. I finished this course. And do it with confidence. 
There's a second category of person that needs to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus, and that's maybe someone who's never personally placed their faith in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. Now, I, I assume everybody in here has, but if, if you haven't, or if you're listening to the words of my voice on this CD at some later time, I want you to know that God loves you so much. He loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should never perish but have everlasting life. That's a message of love, my friends. 